0: Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at the KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. Summer's here, and the time is right for taking stock of where we are in credit markets. You've shortly noticed that Q1 real GDP growth in the U.S. was revised by your government up to 2% from an originally reported 1.1%. Just for fun, compare this to the real GDI number. That's the income accounting that the BEA says is, quote, conceptually equal, unquote, to GDP, and where there is a 96% correlation historically, according to our friends over at Rosenberg Research. Well, the GDI sits at minus 1.8% for Q1, following minus 3.3% in Q4. The moral of this story is that you can choose whatever data suits you to fit your narrative. I guess that's why we have markets. All right, this week our three things are, one, mid-year observations. Risk is very well bid. Two, second-half valuation drivers. We'll go through a point-by-point rundown. Three, deflationary force reversal. What does it mean to cost structures? All right, let's dig a bit deeper. Mid-year update. At the beginning of the year, shell-shocked investors, having just endured the worst bond market in history, were bracing for recession on expectations that the Fed's aggressive hiking program would break the back of the labor market. Corporate earnings growth expectations were being marked down, but the good news was that consumers, businesses, and the financial system were all in good shape, which provided comfort that the correction, the normalization, would prove to be manageable. Oh, and credit had been thoroughly repriced by the ravages of the rate rise so there was plenty of room for optimism. Needless to say, we had a few twists along the way during the first half of 2023. The most profound surprise in the first half was financial instability had been introduced into the mix on the back of mid-sized bank failures in the U.S. and Credit Suisse in Europe. We also had unexpectedly tight labor markets endure in the U.S. due to millions leaving the labor force and employer hoarding. That kept wage growth elevated. Add in, the still significant pile of excess savings from stimulus and consumer spending and corporate earnings remained relatively buoyant. Unfortunately, that has also kept core inflation higher than desired. On the technical side of things, new issue supply was healthy, though far from pandemic-era levels. We had a sense throughout the first half that there was a pull forward of issuance, looking to get ahead of the Fed and possible recession. Leverage finance supply was also rather muted, reflecting the siphoning off of market share by private credit. Meanwhile, limited visibility kept M&A, related supply, relatively low. And, of course, the March events, the notable bank failures, reduced financial institutions' issuance. Add it all up and you get moderate supply, which produced a nice technical wind at the back of markets. Spreads head into the second half, essentially where they started the year— although there was plenty of CHOP courtesy of those March events, which saw IG jump 40 basis points and high yield 116 basis points. That widening has essentially been clawed back by today. Both sector spreads are well inside long-term averages, not to mention typical recession levels. In our opinion, spreads have held in on, one, the belief that any recession will be mild, and two, the relative value appeal of credit due to the highest yields we've seen in 14 years. Not since the GFC have investment grade yields broken through 5%. So much for search for yield. High quality fixed income investors don't have to do much of that anymore. At least not at present. All right, on to our second thing. Second half valuation drivers. So Oaktree says the opportunities in credit today are as attractive as they've been in many years. That's a bold call. Let's put it to the test. As we look ahead into the second half, we think about five factors that will shape credit markets. Inflation, and the Fed's response. Financial stability. Credit conditions. Corporate earnings growth. And China. All right, let's take these one by one. Inflation. It's been stubbornly high due to lagging effects of monetary tightening and lingering or changing supply chain dynamics. And of course, there is the effect of odd data. Do we really care about used car prices or what some model says about rents a year ago? In any event, inflation is coming down, with the Fed and Bloomberg consensus forecasting core PCE to be sub-3% by the fourth quarter of 2024. Still, the Fed and most other central banks have turned up their hawkishness, driving most, if not all, sentiment toward second-half rate cuts away. We've long said the Fed is incentivized to overshoot a result of very public criticism of its initial assessment of inflation as transitory. That means a higher, call it 5.5% terminal rate, for longer, through 2023 at least. And that means an already significant economic headwind will be intensifying as we go through the back half of the year. Financial stability. It's returned. Take a look at the St. Louis Fed Economic Stress Index. Although anytime you are being buffeted by massive moving forces such as an aggressive monetary policy and technological revolution, it's hard to rule shocks out. Bank managements, along with regulators and policymakers, still have to figure out how to manage funding risk in a world of smartphones and social media. But for now, it seems like those March events were truly idiosyncratic. Credit conditions. Well, they're tight. Markets are skewed defensively. Up in quality, up in liquidity, up in simplicity. And the banks have been tightening lending standards for the past year, including a real booster shot to that tightening as a result of those March events. It's worth pointing out that in both consumer and commercial markets, credit is flowing freely to higher quality segments. Riskier credit, however, is more challenged. Still, it's worth noting that riskier credit is dislocating less than otherwise would be the case because of the growth in private markets which are sitting on and selectively deploying a lot of dry powder. That is serving as a better shock absorber, quite frankly, than used to be the case when risk was concentrated in a dozen or so global banks facing regulators. Let's Talk about corporate earnings growth. Margins are coming down from historically high levels and top-line growth is slowing. One factor that is helping is just how well telegraphed this downturn has been. That's given management a lot of time to work on cost structures and more defensive growth strategies. And finally, China. Along with the U.S., it's been a major growth engine for the world, and it's sputtering under Xi's restructuring of the Chinese economy. Slowing global growth and heightened geopolitical tension are two factors that investors need to factor in to their forward view. Now, taking all of this into account, a bullish scenario would include convincing progress on inflation toward the Fed's 2% target, financial stability, including a loosening of credit standards and better than expected economic growth out of China. All of that would drive an improved outlook for corporate earnings growth. A bearish view would be stubbornly high inflation with the Fed hiking toward 6% that would eventually throw the company into a deeper recession, causing corporate earnings growth to fall out of bed and credit conditions to worsen. So what scenario is more likely? Well, on inflation we are more in the bearish camp. Inflation is proving to be sticky. So we take Powell and the FOMC at their word. Remember, they are incentivized to overshoot. On financial stability, we're in the bullish camp. As we move toward the end of the hiking cycle, we believe that a lot of the surprises out there have already surfaced. On credit conditions, we're back in the bearish camp. We believe in long and variable lag effects, and we believe that banks are incentivized not to aggressively grow loans in this environment. Corporate earnings. Well, we lean toward the bearish camp. We expect earnings growth to contract modestly over the next 12 months. And finally, with regard to China, we lean bearish. Yes, it is stimulating, but the changes underway to its economic model are significant and it's hard to turn on a dime. So by my count, that's four out of five factors in the bearish camp versus just one in the bullish camp. But let's put a finer point on that pencil. On inflation, We're a hike or two away from the end, and the FOMC has been at it for 15 months. If it really looks like we hit a wall economically, if the labor market really starts to crack, we do think the FOMC will flip and start to cut rates. As for growth, we think we'll decelerate in this year's fourth quarter and the first quarter of next year down to stall speed, call it 0% to maybe half of 1% to the positive. Unemployment, we think, will top out around 5%, and corporate earnings, we think, will contract in the 5 to 10% area rather than 10 to 20% we see in a more typical downturn or certainly the 40-plus percent we see in a crisis. Now, all of that suggests that IG will continue to hold in well while the riskiest part of high yield remains vulnerable. All right, on to our third thing, deflationary reversals. Notwithstanding the shock inflation we got from unprecedented stimulus, We've long thought the biggest macro force out there was deflation from automation and technological innovation and from globalization. We challenged the view that globalization would unwind post-pandemic on the belief that firms trying to hit quarterly earnings targets would not be all that willing to redo supply chains away from their cheapest alternative. And as far as automation and technology goes, the pandemic showed the benefit of pulling forward automation and tech as quickly as possible but there are a number of things that were deflationary that are now reversing. Pushing against globalization is the trend toward security of everything. Energy, cyber, pharmaceuticals and medical supplies, water, transportation, technology, all are strategic imperatives from a national security perspective as well as from a firm level perspective. Needless to say, there are higher costs related to building security. And on the energy front, It's not just about securing availability of energy sources. It's the need to develop alternative energy sources. The energy transition, for country and firm alike, will be costly. This is not a zero-sum game, at least not as far as the eye can see. The implications for this for creditors is plain to see. Higher costs will eat into margins, already under pressure from economic slowdown and right-sizing. And it also plays into the inflation story. Quite possibly getting to, and sticking to, That 2% target may be more challenging than previously thought. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, heading into the second half, risk is very well bid, and IG in particular is likely to stay that way. Two, second half valuation drivers. In the aggregate, we lean perish, but for all but the riskiest credits, this should prove to be manageable. And three, deflationary force reversal, security of everything, and the energy transition are adding to cost structures. As always, thanks for joining. Don't forget to check in on KBRA.com for our ratings reports and latest research. Enjoy the holiday weekend. We'll see you next week. Hello, listeners. Join me, Van Hesser, KBRA's Chief Strategist for in-depth conversations with credit experts in my new monthly podcast, Leading Voices in Credit, where I'll interview market professionals on the latest trends in credit markets. That's Leading Voices in Credit with Van Hesser. Subscribe now.